Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. This podcast celebrates the festival's sellout gala night, True Stories Told Live, and showcases the storytelling chops of eight writers, each delivering a seven-minute true story, propless and scriptless, inspired by the theme, The Heart of the Matter. Writers flexing their muscles this year included Gina Cole, Glenn Colhoun, Ivan Coyote, Anne Enright, Lloyd Gehring, Ian Rankin and Empo Tutu Van Vert. We hope you enjoy this session. In a mana, in a reo, in a hoe fa, tena koto, tena koto, ki ora, ki ora, hui hui mai, tato kato. Welcome to the much-anticipated gala evening of the 17th Auckland Writers' Festival, our biggest and most ambitious undertaking yet. I want to thank the fantastic festival team who worked so hard to bring this event together. Board and staff alike share a commitment and a passion for the mission, and it is a privilege to work with them. A warm welcome to distinguished guests, including the Minister of Arts, Culture and Heritage, the Honourable Maggie Barry, Deputy Leader of the Opposition, Jacinda Ardern, Co-Leader of the Green Party, James Shaw, and its Arts and Culture Spokesperson, Barry Coates, Councillor Penny Hulse, and other members of Auckland Council. And equally welcomed are you, our friends, our supporters, the world's writers, and the world's readers. Alongside us stand a raft of exceptional partners and supporters who both put both their hearts and their money on the line each year to make this event happen. Thank you to our new platinum partner, Heartland Bank, to our gold partners, the University of Auckland, Spark, Ockham, the Freemasons Foundation and ATED, our core funders, Creative New Zealand and Foundation North, Silver Partners, the New Zealand Listener who support tonight's gala, Barford and Thompson, Craig's Investment Partners, South Pacific Pictures and the New Zealand Herald, Bronze Partners, Hachette, HarperCollins, Penguin Random House, Victoria University Press, the Lion Foundation, the Sir John Logan Campbell Residuary Trust, Collective Hospitality and Teikaranga Wines, our venue partner Auckland Live, our accommodation partner Sky City, our cultural and other programme partners around New Zealand and across the globe, and our generous individual patrons whose benefaction is both financial and spiritual. Well, what a year it's been. And I think it's fair to say that even the most politically engaged of our 2016 guests, and boy were the some, did not quite foresee how things would look 12 months on. But I think it's important to remember that not all of us feel the same about what has happened. For some of us, the shadow events such as a certain North American election and a Brexit, although my leverage in my household's looking up because I've got an Irish passport, my partner is British, so that's working for me, are causes of some despair. But we must not forget that for many others, these electoral outcomes reflect genuine hopes for a better future. No matter which side of the divide or where along the continuum you place yourself, if there is any lesson to be learnt, perhaps it is this. We won't always agree with each other, Indeed, why should we expect to? But if we are to find a way forward that does not simply solidify or widen current divisions, we must find ways to listen to each other, 
to understand each other's experiences and dreams and to engage with those with whom we disagree. And this is surely what literature can do. As one of our guests this year, the lovely George Saunders said recently in an interview, he was traveling for his new wonderful novel, when I was on the road, people were so hungry for basic human ideas, like what is happening here? How do we behave? What should we do? He said, I think people are tired of the kind of snarky telegraphic thing which always puts you in opposition to other people. And he went on to say this, my understanding of the Trump phenomenon is something that's evolving every day, trying to get as much complexity in there as I can. Looking at the people in my family who voted for him and really trying to understand why it seemed like a good idea to them. And I'm trying to think about their economic context and their educational context and all of that. I guess I'm saying I'm trying to make my mind smarter about what's actually happened here. Rather than saying people are so stupid, I'm trying to lift myself out of that ditch of self-certainty and say, okay, let me do a writer's job, which is to talk to people and see if I can actually make that imaginative leap where I'm seeing the world from the mind of a Trump supporter. Our writers, those marvelous creatures we've entrapped in our Auckland clutches for the week, gift us the means to make the imaginative leap, to see the world from the minds of others, including those with whom we disagree. It will come as no surprise to those of you who know me even a little that I'm going to now turn to one of my creative heroes, the late, great Leonard Cohen, and this very short lyric from the song anthem. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. The festival invites you for the next three days to rest amongst the ambiguity of current times and let the marvelous creative gifts of our 2017 writers be the light through the cracks. Without further ado, please welcome to the stage Auckland Writers Festival Chair Pip Muir to introduce our storytellers for this evening. No mai hari mai ki tamaki mokoro. Tenakoto, tenakoto, tenakoto katoa. On behalf of the board and staff of the Auckland Writers' Festival, I'm delighted to welcome you all to our opening gala night. The format for tonight is deceptively simple. Each of the eight writers will have seven minutes to tell a true and personal story without prop or script, inspired by the phrase, the heart of the matter. They'll take the stage one by one to tell their stories, after which they'll be called back to take a joint curtain call before proceeding to the book signing table in the foyer where you can meet them. Opening this evening's lineup is New Zealand's poet, children's writer and doctor, Glenn Cahoon, who is currently practicing medicine for a youth service organization in the Horofanua region. One of Aotearoa's most popular poets, his third collection, Playing God, has sold over 10,000 copies in New Zealand. Next up will be Irish novelist Anne Enright, Ireland's inaugural 
Fiction Laureate and Man Booker Prize winner for her novel, The Gathering. Anne's latest novel, The Green Road, won Irish Novel of the Year and was long listed for the 2015 Man Booker. Her work explores the full gamut of familial relationships and human behavior, revealing the funny, the bleak, and the strange. With thanks to Culture Ireland for their support of Anne's visit to Auckland. Next, philosopher, scholar, and national treasure, Lloyd Gehring will take the stage. Lloyd is 99 years of age and has recently published Portholes to the Past, presenting his reflections of a century. An insight into this delightful man and his extraordinary mind will be celebrated in a very special in-conversation session at 10 a.m. tomorrow. Of Gina Cole's debut book of short stories, Black Ice Matter, which won Best First Book Fiction Prize at the Ockham New Zealand Book Awards on Tuesday evening, the Sunday Star Times wrote, it would be a good book on any reckoning, but as a first book, it is simply outstanding. This collection shows an assurance of tone, a clarity of style and expression, and an ability to handle different voices that would be the envy of more experienced authors. Then stepping into the breach after Hajin had to cancel his New Zealand visit is award-winning writer and Shakespeare expert James Shapiro. The Times said of him that he bestrides the Shakespearean world like a colossus, in the happier sense of the phrase. His research credentials are impeccable, but he's also one of the field's great communicators. And game for the challenge at late notice too. Thank you, James. Another of North America's gifted raconteurs is the Canadian writer, performer, and storyteller, Ivan Coyote, exploring the hazy concepts of gender and how to navigate them with wisdom and kindness. Ivan's work has been called essential. It's also funny, moving, and very thoughtful. Ivan's visit to Auckland is supported by the International Festival of Authors and Canada Council for the Arts. Episcopalian priest, teacher, and writer, Impo Tutu Van Firth is Archbishop Desmond Tutu's daughter and director of the Desmond and Leach Tutu Legacy Foundation. Her writing includes the wonderful The Book of Forgiving, co-written with her father. Thank you to Platinum patrons Francis and Bill Bell for their support of Impo's time in Auckland. And to end the lineup tonight, the one and only Ian Rankin. Fans of Inspector Rebus and Detective Malcolm, you are in for a treat this festival. From Scotland, Ian Rankin is the winner of many awards for his writing. He holds honorary degrees from four universities and he has an OBE for services to literature. And so, a terrific lineup of talent. I can't wait to get started, I'm sure you can't either. So please welcome to the stage, Glenn Cahoon. Kia ora everybody, um, they've told us we've got seven minutes each but I've taken off my glasses so I can't see the clock. As you all know a good GP can see four or five people in seven minutes so. Uh. <clears throat> the heart is the first organ in the human embryo to develop. It forms when two blood-filled tubes 
fold themselves together and fuse. This structure begins to beat spontaneously at about the age of four weeks. It bulges and swells, it twists, it turns and ties itself into an elaborate four-chambered knot that sits at the center of the chest for the rest of our lives and sustains us. It gives rise to the first cadence we ever hear and to the last. New Zealand has two poetries. One is written in English and the other is an oral poetry. It is sung, intoned, chanted in Te Reo Māori. And for years I have sat in between both those poetries, but only once, written a piece that for me takes those two small blood-filled tubes, ties them together into some sort of knot that sits in the chest and throbs. It tells the story of my great, 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 great-grandmother, Mary Frere, who gave away her grandson, Henry Cliff, on the day he was born out of wedlock. The doctor took the baby, gave him to his sister. His sister was married to a man called James Cahoon, who lived in Edinburgh. I would have grown up with a long and proud tradition of losing rugby matches. <laughs> if it wasn't for the fact that Henry Cliff emigrated to the Bay of Islands in 1870. My family now are the only descendants of Mary Freer who are still alive. Although we are no longer English or Scottish, now we are Pākehā, or we are Māori, or we are Samoan. And so tonight, I want to take you to my small shed in the backyard where, like Dr Frankenstein, I have been working with two small blood-filled tubes trying to tie them together in a way that gives rise to some sort of new life. Oral poetry, as you are aware, to your rising horror, is sung. <laughs> I will ask you to forgive me now <clears throat> like all honest doctors, I need to tell you this is going to hurt you <laughs> a lot more than it hurts me. One poem, two ways. He motea kia mere. 
And from your eyes and from the cross between your thighs, you gave me for the doctor's pay, you gave me for the shame, 
You put me on a ship to sail 10,000 miles away Oh Mary, I am hung from thee Like Jesus from the Jesus tree From your lost and from your found and from your seed on stony ground You gave to us the baker's son You gave to us the slog You gave to us the long white cloud You gave to us the song And I have come from upside down and I have walked all week And I have come, your long lost son To kiss you on the cheek Oh Mary, I am sung from thee Cuckoo in the tui tree From your lips from your side and from the want inside your eye I've brought for you the baker's son I've brought for you the want I've brought for you the long white cloud I've brought for you the song and I have come the long way round And I have walked all week And I have come to hundred years To wake you from your sleep Kia I don't know if this is a story. I think it's just a place. Um, I type for a living. I don't stand up in, impromptu. Anyway, this is a place. When I was a child, we went on our holidays to uh, the north coast of Dublin. You can see it when you come in on the plains. Um, uh, if you're coming in from the north, there's a round tower and a kind of water tower, like a fat woman and a thin man on a headland. And the place is called Portran. We had a house, I mean, house is too big a word for the kind of hut. It was a, uh, some people said chalet, but I think it was more of a shack. Uh, we had two double bunk beds and a room for my parents and then the living kitchen room. Sometimes, I mean, there were five of us and sometimes our cousins came down from the north. So I don't know where we put the cousins. I think there was a, a tent or two, anyway, a pump house out the front. It was by the sea, there were, actually, I know where we put the cousins because there was a, it, we put them in the VW Beetle. We got 14 people into a Volkswagen Beetle. 
Um, that was the record. I mean, we, were, we, we needed to go somewhere, so that's, that's what we did. Um, so, uh, but basically, it was an amazingly open space. It was a long beach, ferns. English people said bracken, but they were definitely ferns to us. Um, a marsh. Now it's all kind of houses. And at the end of the very long beach, there was the water tower and the, the fat woman and the skinny man, the round tower, round tower, like a, a monk's round tower. You saw it on your copy books at school. Um, and it was an immensely free life. One of the most exciting things that got to happen, we went out swimming all the time. We went out in boats and we messed around. But the most exciting thing that happened was when a siren went off because beside the round tower and the water tower was a lunatic asylum and that meant that one of the loonies had escaped. <laughs> when one of the loonies had escaped, we all went in and hid under the bunk beds and uh, there was also a siren for the all clear. Um, and, uh, and then we went out and, and played again. So this lunatic asylum uh, was called St. Eta's. Um, and uh, St. Eta was, actually the patron saint of the insane is, as you all know, St. Dimpna. Um, St. Dimpna, uh, or Davnet in Irish, was a 12th century uh, princess. Uh, her father, uh, when her mother died, her father searched the entire kingdom to find a suitable bride and realized that the only one that he could marry was in his own house, and that it was his daughter, uh, Dimna, who fled with her father confessor to Belgium. Her father uh, caught up with her and cut her head off in Giel in Belgium, which is now a center for mental health in Europe. It's quite interesting. <laughs> Um, and I suppose it's because the father was mad that she became the patron saint of madness and mad enough to want to do all that. Um, but Saint Eta was a different style of saint altogether. Um, she did reattach the head and body of a man, which I suppose if you're feeling a bit depressed or out of your head or in some way insane, you would want your head and your body to be somehow realigned. Um, she was also given to spontaneous breastfeeding. Um, uh, I think in response to an apparition of the baby Jesus, but I'm not entirely sure. It may have just been because she was feeling that way inclined. It's a useful trick. <laughs> anyway, so on the way past St. Peter's, there was this big long road and we, a long straight road and an amazing cornfield on one side and trees on the other side. Um, and when we were arriving in Bortran, there was a guy with two sticks, we called him two sticks. We were really, really delighted when we saw two sticks, this man who was making his way up the road with great difficulty. We never offered two sticks a lift, but we did offer people a lift. Uh, the beetle had been changed at this time to a, a, a mint green, uh, Ford Corsair, um, which was somehow superior to a Cortina, or maybe it was inferior, I'm not sure which. Anyway, but people used to come to St. Eta's um, on the train to a place called Donabate, and there was a mile of this very straight road to go down, and the bus was very infrequent, and it was my father's habit to pick people up you know, just as he was passing, would you like a lift, would you like a lift? So they'd get in, 
and they would be going to visit the asylum. And some of them would be on day release, I think, from the asylum. And this was quite astonishing. I, I put, the, I put so people ask, is your work autobiographical? And there is one moment in a, my book, The Gathering, where I am in the book, and it is when the characters are going to St. Dita's to visit uh, the narrator's uncle. And I'm in the car, so I have myself there as a child, dressed in shorts and nothing else, uh, which was uh, true, to, true to how I rolled in those days. And uh, entirely happy as I, with my data in the car. Anyway, uh, we'd give them a lift and drop them off at the asylum. So I, when I was putting this visit to St. Eta's in, in the gathering, I went back to research. And I drove into the place, and it wasn't so much a hospital as a kind of, it was like a town, it was huge. There was kind of, it was a late 19th century, 18, 1890s. There were Wharton's houses, very, not, you know, real estate is all we think about now, very nice houses um, for the Whartons. Uh, 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 and then building after building, and then you come through to the sea and the fat lady and the thin man on the headland and all these amazing casement windows where the lunatics were no longer. Um, but there was a kind of madness in the air. I had never realized it was so large. And I went out again and I drove to um, the sea, a little housing estate and a little boy on a bicycle. And there was a, a, a plot, a field. I mean, a field is too big a word, but it was a plot. It was like the size of a kitchen garden in a country domain, okay? And there was a gate. And I climbed over the gate. There was a little row of fresh, small sapling cherry blossoms and a central monument. And the little monument said, in your pity, I think it said, pray, for the residents of St. Titus who were buried here. And it, it, it was, there was nothing there. There was one small little headstone. I went over and um, it was, uh, and read it. Um, and it's, uh, it was put there by an uncle for, um, on behalf of his grief-stricken sister who had lost her child. Now, I researched, it was early enough in, the, in, in, in internet terms, but I researched this place um, and found out that there were 5,000 people buried in that plot of land. And so I, I wrote about that. I wrote about that. Um, and I told you it wasn't really a story. <laughs> I suppose the last bit of this non-story, and I'll go, I'll see my notes, I've forgotten something. But the last bit, the reason that I put the place into the book was I was at a writer's retreat. I was in my uh, early, my late 20s, um, having a w wonderful time failing to write books, staying up late at night and writer's retreats on the taxpayer's dime, um, drinking long into the night and, 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 and with visual artists and all kinds of ne'er-do-wells. Um, one, one night I was talking to this woman and I have no idea what her name was, she was a painter. And she was my age, or maybe a little bit younger. And she said, I, I was in, in St. Eta's. Um, and I was, oh, oh, but how, why, how? Or, or what do you say when, when people uh, uh, announce that they've spent time in 
I mean, it was a lunatic asylum, let's face it. Uh, so I was watching her perhaps closely for signs of psychosis, or maybe it was late at night and nobody cared. Um, she said oh, that she'd been put in by her mother um, and her uncle. Her uncle was a priest. And in those days, apparently, in the days of my teenage years, a priest could sign a section order. You wouldn't need a GP or a cop, you'd need. The priest was able. And the reason they put her inside was that they, she said that the priest had felt her up. So her uncle, the priest, who had felt her up, uh, put her in, in. Now, we all this, in those days, we thought that was kind of funny. I don't know if she said felt her up or whatever, but they, or maybe mm, dropped the hand or any of the semi-amusing kind of words that were used in those days. And I, I said, but what happened? Because a section order, you could be locked away for life. And she said, well, you know, they kept me in for three months on lots of medication. And then they um, took me off the medication and then they let me go. And uh, great, that's the end of my story. <laughs> Goodbye. The heart of the matter. First, I'll tell you how someone else got to the heart of the matter when I couldn't, to be followed by how I got to the heart of the matter in quite a different way. It happened quite a long time ago. It was um, 1969. I had to go to Beirut. I was a member of a global organisation whose executive was going to meet in Beirut. And as I had to pay part of the fare myself, I thought it would be a good idea if I broke the journey on the way home and spent a little time in Mesopotamia, what we call now Iraq, because in those days I was teaching Old Testament studies. Well, to get to Iraq, one had to have a visa. There was no embassy of Iraq in New Zealand, I found I had to apply to the Egyptian embassy in Sydney, which I did. So, armed with my visa, I set off. During the meeting in Beirut, I heard there was a bus that travelled the desert from Beirut over to Baghdad, some 600 miles of desert. And I thought to myself, my word, that would be a great experience. I don't know why I thought that, <laughs> but I did at the time. After all, this was the desert over which the Jewish people had been taken as exiles from their land of Israel to Babylon some 600 years before the Christian era. Now, when I signed up for this Bus. By the way, it had been established by two New Zealanders called Nairn. Uh, they had fought with uh, General Allenby in the First World War, and after the war was over, they decided to set up a, a bus service from Beirut to Baghdad to carry mail and passengers. Well, of course, by the time 
I was in it. It, it, They had long since sold it, and it was under some Arab uh, ownership. uh, But the bus they had ended up with was still the same bus that they were using. Uh, it, It wasn't an ordinary bus. It was like a big trailer. And uh, it carried about 20 passengers, and we all sat in dick chairs. (laughs) Well, you see, overnight you could sleep. Now, sadly, the service offered on this bus was what it used to be with the Nairn brothers. They used to supply uh, refreshments on board. But by the time I caught it, I found that as I got on the bus, they handed me a big bundle of sandwiches and said, eat them when you feel like it. (laughs) Well, the bus set off, and after a short time, we seemed to have left all roads behind. In fact, I didn't know how the bus driver was was steering it. He must have been doing it by instinct, or perhaps when darkness came, he was using the stars. I don't know. Uh, It wasn't a sandy desert. It was flat, but more like hard soil with an occasional salt bush here and there. When I uh, woke up and dawn came, I found we were on a kind of road, a road which went from, from Jordan over to Baghdad. Well, about six o'clock, we came to the border with Iraq. And we're there, we had to show our passports and visas. And to my alarm, my visa wasn't accepted. Well, I was very embarrassed because they held up the bus for a whole hour until the next in command arrived. After all, they couldn't drop me in the middle of the desert. Well, he, he agreed that the bus could go on, provided that I reported to the Baghdad police station as soon as I arrived, which I did. Of course, I wasn't used to uh, reporting to a police station, so I didn't know what to expect. But the, the, the officer who met me uh, was very kindly, and he sat at his desk and he he pulled over my passport. And suddenly, his eyes lit up and he said, follow me. So I followed him to his superior and I noticed that his uh, superior, uh, uh, that he was very servile in his attitude to the superior, but the superior congratulated him. He had reached the heart of the matter, and it was this. The Egyptian embassy had put into my passport an Egyptian visa. (laughs) But over the top of it, in English, they had written, acting on behalf of the Department of Iraqi Affairs. Well, of course, I couldn't read Arabic, but you see, the people at the border couldn't read English. But this friendly policeman could. And at last, I had a valid visa into Iraq. Then he said to me, of course, you've got to get an exit visa to get out of Iraq. (laughs) But I found it only applied if you stayed three days. 
So I next went down in the next three days to Babylon. Now, Mesopotamia, as we used to call Iraq, is a very wide, flat valley drained by two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And Baghdad was on the Tigris. 60 miles away on the Euphrates was Babylon. I took a taxi there and wandered through the streets of this ancient city, probably the most sophisticated city in the world at that time, 600 years before the Christian era. It is from Babylonian science, for example, that we have 60 seconds to a minute, 60 minutes to an hour. But as more, this was where the Jewish exiles had been placed in the sixth century. And as I wandered up the ruins, I thought of them. It was in this place that the first five books of the Bible were composed by Jewish scholars. And as a professor then of Old Testament studies, I felt I was in the middle of it. I had reached the heart of the matter. Tēnā koutou katoa. Ni sambula vanaka, ma lo lele, talofalava. Good evening, everybody. I want to take you back 30 years to 1987. And I want to take you back to a particular morning at the end of summer in 1987. That was my first year at Auckland University, and I woke up that morning in Sandringham in my student flat, student flat, and um, I was very excited for what the day was going to bring. I had a very huge sense of anticipation for five reasons. The first reason was that I had been awarded a scholarship, the Auckland City Council Queen Elizabeth II Scholarship for Pacific Island students. And the second reason was that I was going to a ceremony at Old Government House in the Auckland University grounds to receive the scholarship. The third reason was that I was going to meet the other recipient of the scholarship, who was Michael Jones. And in 1987, Michael Jones was a famous all black. The fourth reason was that I was going to meet the mayor of Auckland, and in 1987, the mayor of Auckland was Kath Tizard, and she was the first woman to be mayor of Auckland. And the fifth and final reason was that I was going to receive a cheque for $1,000. And in 1987, when I was a student, $1,000 was a lot of money. But apart from all of that excitement, all I could think of was one thing. What am I going to wear <laughs> to the ceremony? Fortunately for me, one of my very good friends and one of my flatmates at the time, Sharon Hawke, had a brand new white shirt. She lent me her white shirt and I ironed it, put it on, and I drove in my white Toyota Corona that my parents had given me to the 
ceremony at Old Government House. I met Michael Jones. He was very shy. I was very shy too. I met um, Dame Kath Tizard. Well, she was Kath Tizard at the time. Um, we ate cucumber sandwiches at Old Government House and I got my cheque for $1,000. And I thought, that's it. That's, that's a great day. That's, there's nothing more this day can offer me. But I was wrong. There was more to come. As I was driving home up Simon Street, I saw a friend of mine at the bus stop, Sarah Fesola'i. Normally when I'm driving in my car and I see a friend of mine at the bus stop, I do not stop. I don't know why I did it. I don't know what possessed me. But this day I pulled over, wound down the window and I asked Sarah where she was going. She told me she was going to visit her mother at Green Lane Hospital. So I said, jump in, I'll take you there. So we drove to Green Lane Hospital. I drove into the gate. I dropped Sarah off outside, accident and emergency. Sarah got out of the car, she shut the door. I pulled away from the curb, but I did not check my blind spot. If I had checked my blind spot, I would have seen a huge BMW motorcycle speeding up the driveway. But I didn't check. She hit the right front wheel of my car, and what that did was it spun the steering wheel with my arm on it to the left. And what I'd like you all to do is to try something with me. Hold up your left arm like this at a right angle and keep your upper arm in place, and just try and move your forearm to the left. There's not much range of movement, is there? It's not a natural action for your arm to do. What I can tell you from personal experience is that if your arm is in that position and you apply great speed and great force, it will move and it will snap. I heard a clunk and I felt a bump, and everything slowed down. The woman on the motorcycle tumbled over the bonnet of the car, fell on the ground, stood up immediately and started hurling abuse at me. I saw a doctor on the footpath, walking in slow motion. His white coat was flapping in slow motion, and he was shaking his head slowly. He'd obviously seen the whole thing. I tried to get out of the car, opened the door, but my left arm was not coming with me, and that's when I realized it was broken. So I picked it up, got out of the car, walked around to the footpath and collapsed in front of the doctor. And he took my pulse, and then I saw a Fijian nurse coming out of the entrance of accident and emergency, which is very eerie for me at the time because I am Fijian. She was pushing a stretcher and she pushed it down to me, and the doctor and her put me onto the stretcher and wheeled me in to accident and emergency. I was in a lot of pain. I had a spiral fracture of the humerus, this bone here, upper arm, which was caused when my arm spun off the steering wheel. Very painful. The doctor gave me a shot of pethidine, and all the pain went away. 
And then I saw a doctor coming towards me with a very strange-looking pair of snub-nosed scissors. And he went to cut the sleeve <laughs> of Sharon's white shirt. <laughs> and I said, no. Well, actually, I said, no. <laughs> Do not cut the white shirt. And so the poor nurses, bless them, had to extract me from my white shirt. And they did it. It was very difficult, of course, because I had a broken arm, but they did it. And now we come to the heart of the matter. What was the heart of the matter that day? It wasn't what I thought it was going to be when I woke up that morning in my flat in Sandringham. It wasn't the fact that I was going to get a prestigious scholarship and that I was going to meet Michael Jones and that I was going to meet the mayor of Auckland and eat cucumber sandwiches in old government house and get a check for $1,000. It wasn't any of that. It wasn't even the fact that I'd been in a car accident and I'd broken my arm. The heart of the matter that day was friendship. My friendship with Sharon Hawke, she kindly lent me her white shirt and I wanted to get it back to her in one piece and I managed to do that. And my friendship with Sarah Fesalai, which has changed my life forever because I now have a metal plate in my arm <laughs> with six screws in it and I think of Sarah every time the metal plate makes the shoplifting alarms go off in shopping malls. <laughs> the heart of the matter that day was friendship. I was introduced a few minutes ago as a writer and as, a, as an expert on Shakespeare as well. And uh, if you had told me when I was 20 years old that I'd be standing here and introduced in that way, not only would I have laughed, but my teachers would have laughed as well. I hated Shakespeare with a passion. Very few people have ever hated Shakespeare. And I can date it quite precisely to the spring of 1969. I was a teenager, 14 years old, at Midwood High School in Brooklyn, where Woody Allen was the most famous graduate. And we weren't reading Woody Allen, we were reading Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And we read it in a very mechanical, dry, and foreign way. I didn't get a bit of it. I didn't even get the dirty bits that my classmates somehow intuited, but I did not. And I swore then I would never study Shakespeare again if I could help it. And that was the only time I've ever formally taken a class or a course in Shakespeare. I never took Shakespeare at university, and I swore I never would after that as well. And yet I've spent the last 40 years of my life writing and reading and teaching and working on Shakespeare. So I want to explain the paradox of that. And there was a moment actually shortly after I had that horrible experience in school where everything could have changed. I grew up in Brooklyn, and the greatest Shakespeare production of the 20th century, Peter Brook's Midsummer Night's Dream, came to the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And my parents said, you can go to see one play. You can see that or anything else you want. 
And I was kind of tempted to see it, but I remembered my promise to myself. And there was another play, Hair, and friends told me there were naked people in Hair. <laughs> I love Hair, I still hum a few of those tunes. What changed for me as a Shakespearean was Freddie Laker. Freddie Laker tried for seven years to fly people from New York to London for 99 US dollars each way. And my big brother and I took advantage of this. We held down crummy jobs in New York City, then flew to London and then on to Europe. And when we were in London, we started seeing plays. And I was hooked on Shakespeare. It was really like a drug and it was cheaper than any other drug available at that time. <laughs> and for me, a more powerful drug. And I started going back every year to see, in the month of August, 20 or 25 plays. And after about six or seven years, I had seen about 150 Shakespeare plays and finally understood how they worked. And I can remember to this day the greatest of them. I was quite young, and I saw Jonathan Price play Hamlet, as well as the ghost of Hamlet, his father's voice emanating from him. And if the other productions had been like a drug, this was like heroin to me, and it was an extraordinary experience. And since then, I was hooked on Shakespeare. But I still could not write, and my experience as a writer changed irrevocably in 1976 when I had both the fortune and misfortune to study with Professor Stephen Marcus. And I wrote a paper for Professor Marcus, who was old school. He had cigars stuck in his sport jacket pocket and spoke in a very gruff and terrifying way. I wrote a four-page essay for him on Mill's essay, Mill's uh, work on civilization, John Stuart Mill. And I remember to this day receiving that paper back from him. He failed me on that paper, but it was much more brutal than that. And having graded thousands of college papers in my day, I have a little more appreciation for how horrible exper an experience it was for him to read my work. <laughs> he began by trying to salvage the first few sentences. And then he realized the machete wasn't sharp enough to cut through them. So he began to write snide remarks. Cliché, cliché, cliché. And then he started getting angry. <laughs> misspelling increased. There were probably 40 words misspelled, misusing the word anathema. And then he finally started writing, this is not English, this is not English. And by the end of the second of the four pages, he simply stopped writing comments, went to the last page and wrote, you must see me about this, F. I saw him, he asked me to rewrite the first two pages, he failed me again. I loved writing until that moment, I've never loved writing since. I really haven't, but he made me into a writer. Ten years later, I entered a room and saw him sitting there, and it was a job interview for the job I currently hold some 35 years later. I covered up as best I could and sat catty-corner to him. He didn't recognize me. 
Seven years later, I was awarded tenure in the department. So I finally felt brave enough to take those copies which I had saved all those years, <laughs> walked in, put it in front of him, and said, Professor Marcus, why did you do this to me? And he looked up, and he was a little older, and he was a little less gruff. And he said, I had to pick on somebody, and I decided to pick on you. I still have those papers. I looked at them briefly before I came over. I've come over to Auckland with my 20-year-old son, and I showed him the paper as if it were one of my students rather than my own, and he sadly shook his head and looked at it in disbelief. Two horrible school experiences at 14 and at 20 would determine the arc of a career, and that is the heart of the matter. Thank you. On April 19th last year, I had just gotten home from the road and uh, I was a bit tired and I went to walk up to the market to get some groceries. And about a half a block up the street from me, I could see an incident going down. It was just something about the body language that seemed wrong, and uh, as I got closer, I could see more and more and more what was happening. It was a young, very beautiful, maybe 19 or 20-year-old woman wearing a sundress. She had headphones in her ears, and she was reading a book. And um, standing over top of her, right up in her face, was a man, weighed about uh, twice her, her weight, and was about, he was about 50, 45 or 50, and he was right up in her face, and he was saying, why won't, you, why won't you say hello to me? Why won't you even say, what's wrong with you, you bitch? And he was right in her face, and so nobody was doing anything. So I went to intervene, but I was cut off by about a four-foot, ten-inch tall little woman who turned out to be named Maria from Costa Rica. And she intervened, and she got to him before I did, and she just gave him a, what we call, the, my, my family calls a tongue lashing about uh, what was he doing bothering a... Uh, a young woman like that, and what was his problem, and, um, uh, and he, uh, he referred to her by a, a very vile name, so I stepped in and I said, uh, you, you don't get to talk to this young woman like that, you don't get to talk to this woman like that, and then he called me a fag. I said, wrong again, sir. And uh, anyway, the bus pulled up, he got on the bus, the young woman did not get on the bus, she didn't want, want to get the, on the bus with him, and she, she turned around and she said, uh, Thank you so much, both of you, for stepping in. Uh, that's the third time that's happened to me today. I, I should have uh, worn a flower sack to work today. Um, I got followed earlier, and nobody stepped in but, but you. So thank you very much. And I was really struck by that, and I went home, and I wrote a very brief little Facebook uh, post about it, basically something to the effect of, Dear men, if she's wearing headphones, and reading a book. It's kind of code for leave me alone, you know? And uh, she, she knows she looks beautiful. Uh, she looks lovely in that dress. She's not taking public transit to meet you. She's trying to go somewhere. No, please leave her alone, tell your friends. And uh, I hit send and I thought nothing about it until about an hour later when I picked up my phone. My phone said that you have 2,185 notifications. And, 
So that post has now been translated into Portuguese and Spanish and uh, Russian and French, and it's gone all over. It's uh, much to my chagrin. Um, it's the most read thing I've ever, ever published <laughs> now. Um, I got contacted by news press all over the world, and uh, a Russian feminist group contacted me. They wanted me to Skype in. I said, I'd love to do that. And they said, we're so excited to hear from a feminist man. And I said, uh, well, um, I am a feminist, but I'm, I'm not a man. And they said, oh. I said, I'm trans. And they said, oh, we're, we're not interested. But the backlash to this was uh, severe and uh, immediate. I got, uh, I got uh, sort of put on those men's rights activists' uh, websites for, uh, to be scheduled for harassment. Um, uh, I got emails, I got uh, dick pics, I got uh, horrible shots of women with uh, ejaculate all over their face. I got called every name in the book. Uh, my favorite, I think, was Dickless Wonder. Um, uh, they thought I was a man, though, so they thought they were insulting me, and uh, so I like that one. I, Dickless, I'm going to get a T-shirt, actually. I think it says "Dickless Wonder." But there was, in the midst of all this abuse uh, directed mostly at me, um, and then later on the commenters and the posters, there was this uh, there was this really interesting conversation unfolding amongst the women and girls who were commenting, saying that this was not unusual, that they had experienced that kind of. Uh, um, harassment and um, um, come-ons and being followed like ever you know since some of them since they were 10 or 11 years old and uh, so that really struck me in and to, to me that was the heart of the matter I wanted to I wanted to keep um, the the um, the misogyny and the vitriol down to a bare minimum so that this the women kept uh, feeling safe enough to come there and have those discussions so I actually got a um, repetitive strain injury on my thumb from getting up every morning and hitting band delete band delete band delete band delete band delete on all on all these uh, all these terrible comments and um, uh, just so that I could uh, do what I could do to to sort of assist in this very beautiful and interesting and vital uh, to me conversation happening and that's how I almost missed a very important opportunity which was I got up one and the misogynists were very active in the UK at night uh, in Canada and uh, so I wake up in the morning and I would bandalete, 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 bandalete and so that's how I almost missed. I got an email that said I love dick and I went oh here we go again and then it said um, Jill Soloway Amazon Prime um, television show based on the book by uh, Chris Krause uh, wants you to audition. Um, so I, I, un, uh, I luckily hadn't deleted it, so I opened it and it said that the, Jill Soloway, the producer, had seen me somewhere on YouTube and she wanted me to get this audition to play the part of a butch writer living in a trailer. I was to be Kevin Bacon's love rival. <laughs> so I thought, play, <laughs> you know? And uh, so I had never auditioned for, for an acting part. I'm not an actor, I'm a storyteller. So I, I enlisted the help of a friend of mine who was an actor and we, we uh, prepped me for this audition and I had to make a tape and send it in and I did very earnestly. And um, I didn't get the part. Um, but it's okay because uh, that, that round of abuse um, and vitriol lasted for about three months. 
and it eventually petered off, but it started back up again. The Feminist News has reposted, um, and the last time I checked this morning, I think it had been, um, re it had been shared another 16,000 times, and there's now a whole new, um, there's a now a whole new onslaught of uh, abuse coming into my email, so I feel really good about it. I'm thinking to myself, um, uh, orange is the new black, I await your correspondence. Thank you very much. Pretty is as pretty does, my mother says. I, I do have one of those. Um, I'm usually introduced as Archbishop Tutu's daughter, but there's no reverse immaculate conception here. <clears throat> I say princely is as princely does. And I'd like to share with you um, an invitation to meet three princes who have had an impact on my life. My first real kiss was from a young man who my sisters called Red Renter Shoes. They said that his choice in footwear was so uniquely hideous, the shoes could not possibly be available for sale, they must be for rental only. <laughs> and, um, I didn't realize at the time that it was my first real kiss and reported to my dorm mate in high school. And then he stuck his tongue in my mouth. Ew! Why would anyone do that? My friend was slightly more sophisticated than I and told me that this is a French kiss and it's very grown up and you should practice on an orange. I <laughs> I couldn't figure out the orange thing, and so I skipped it. <laughs> Red Renter Shoes um, claimed to be a Swazi prince, and uh, given that his uh, putative father had 70 wives and 200 children, it is entirely possible that he was a prince. Of course, it's entirely possible that he wasn't. The second prince, um, was my high school sweetheart, and uh, he was an Englishman, no royal blood at all that I could discern. Um, red hair and a passion for reggae and a great love of the smell of the soil. He caused a stir when he came to visit me at our home in Soweto. So this was the 1970s, um, the apartheid era, and each of the roads that um, led into Soweto, which is the sprawling black township, each of the roads had a huge sign saying, uh, private road, entrance to Soweto, and if you're a white person, that you have to apply to some government department for a permit in order to be able to enter the township. Um, of course, he didn't apply. Um, he, he did, however, manage to stun our housekeeper because he picked up 
the dish towel to help me with my chores. And I think our housekeeper believed that white men were genetically incapable of doing any housework. Um, of course, in that time, we had very few white visitors to the black township. Uh, we had policemen or soldiers or school inspectors were the only people who came. And um, so any white person who came to the township on any other basis caused a great stir and in fact would almost magically um, call up a crowd of young children who would, you know, chant delightedly, hoo-wee, hoo-wee, which means whitey, whitey. <laughs> um, so you can imagine the spectacle that was created when um, my boyfriend uh, decided that he was going to cut the grass in our front garden. <clears throat> my uh, mother's friends said, mm, trust the tutus, the only black South Africans with a white gardener. <laughs> I think it was the sweetness of spirit with which he undertook any of his tasks that convinced me that he was indeed a prince. In the time between then and now, um, there's been a marriage, a divorce. Um, I've kissed several frogs and <laughs> maybe a couple of other princes. Um, I have two beautiful daughters, um, the younger of whom had decided by age three that she wanted to be queen of the world, and uh, the, the older of whom decided that she wanted to be a princess because princesses don't actually have to work. And so I was in April of 2015 standing on a balcony in Dharamsala, India. And this was at the palace of the Dalai Lama. And I was on a magical journey um, to record the conversations that became the Book of Joy. Um, conversations between my father and His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And on this particular day, as you can imagine, magical journeys all need some support from non-magical folks called funders. And um, on this particular day, we had skipped tea time in order to have um, the funders have photographs with His Holiness and my dad. And so they had had this procession of really delighted people having photographs with His Holiness and my dad. And, and then they had gone back into the taping to go and listen to this last conversation. And I had remained outside and I, I said, oh, um, come, I want to have a photograph taken. And 
on this white drop cloth, I fell to my knee and I became the prince and I asked Marceline to marry me. So it's not the race, it's not the creed, it's not the class that matters. If princely is what princely does, then it's the love in the heart that's the heart of the matter. Thanks very much. Um, there's not a lot I can do in seven minutes, um, but I can turn you all into best-selling writers if you would like it. Um, you only have to obey two very simple rules, which I'm about to give you. Um, we have to go back to my childhood. Um, I was always fascinated by narrative, by stories. As a kid, I was trying to draw comics and write comic books and all the rest of it. Um, song lyrics for non-existent bands because I had no musical ability at all, but I could design her album sleeves and stuff. Um, and when I was 17, a poetry competition was announced uh, in my school. It was a nationwide competition. Um, and I thought, oh, I could have a go at that. So I went to the school library and I got a book, How to Write Poetry. And lesson one, chapter one, line one, write about what you know. Write about what you feel passionate or what you feel strongly about. I thought, okay. Well, one thing I felt really strongly about was my great aunt Jenny, who lived in a neighboring town and who ruled our family with a rod of iron. My sister and I were taken up to sit with her every Sunday afternoon uh, and listen to her tell stories of the general strike uh, over and over and over again. And so I uh, wrote a poem called Euthanasia. And um, it, uh, it, it, it won second prize. And um, Aunt Jenny wasn't too happy about it, but... Uh, so by the time I got to university, I was a published poet. And, um, but uh, a short story competition was announced, and I thought, oh, well, you know, a short story is just basically a poem that goes to the edges of the paper. Uh, I could <laughs> probably have a go at that. So I uh, write about what you know, write about what you know, write about what you feel strongly about. Well, Aunt Jenny had a brother. Um, <laughs> Now, he's dead by this stage, he's dead by this stage, but he'd, um, he'd been a, a gentleman, he ran the local newspaper, he was a man of some, some you know, uh, he was fame locally, but he was also an alcoholic. And one day, when he was a young man, he'd taken all his clothes off and gone for a walk through the streets. And because of who he was, everybody pretended this was quite normal behavior. So I wrote a, a short story called Walking Naked, and I got a phone call from the radio station who were running it, and they said, Ian, you've, you've won first prize. I went, oh, great. They said, you get presented with your certificate by uh, Sir Peter Ustinov. I thought, fantastic. Uh, and we'll put your story on the radio. I went, oh, whoa, whoa. Uh, <laughs> I said, look, can we change a few things? No, nothing got changed. It went on the radio. Aunt Jenny heard it and went ballistic all over again. And uh, <laughs> so I learned lesson number one. Lesson number one, write about what you don't know. <laughs> one thing I knew nothing about was the police. So I'm still at university, I'm going to write my first novel, and it's going to be about a cop. I thought, okay, a cop, how do I find out? I better do some research. How do you find out about the cops? I know, I'll write to the chief of police. Dear sir, I'm writing a novel which will lift the lid off the true nature of the police in Edinburgh, 
and show them to be every bit as dodgy as the people they're investigating. Will you help me? I got a very nice letter saying, go to Leith Police Station and talk to these two detectives. Fantastic. It's middle of winter, so I turn up looking like a tramp. All right, I'm wearing a kind of great coat, an army great coat I got from a charity shop. I've got Doc Martin boots on, haven't shaved, bloodshot eyes, all the rest of it. I turn up, these two very dapper detectives are there, and they say, you're writing a book? I said, yeah, yeah, I just want to ask if you, well, they said, well, what's your book about? So I gave them the skeletal plot of the first Rebus novel, Knots and Crosses not realizing that it was quite close to a case they were investigating. A missing persons inquiry, which became a murder inquiry with seven victims. So they went for a little chat and they came back and they said, Ian, we've had a great idea. Why don't we pretend you're a suspect <laughs> in, a, in an ongoing police inquiry? Well, yeah, great, you know. So they took me to an interview room and they, they got a computer and they plugged the computer and they said, well, uh, we'll just take a few details. Yeah, great, I'm writing all down, fine. Name Ian Rankin, tap, 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 tap. Uh, your date of birth, Ian, your address, occupation. And what were you doing the night of the 10th of October? 10th of October. <laughs> I said, you know, I think I was out drinking that night, blanked it out, you wake up next morning, you can't remember what you've done. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I, we were for about an hour and a half. Oh, this is fantastic, got some great stuff. I've got great stuff, thanks guys. Went home that weekend, told my dad that story. He said, you silly bugger. They thought you'd done it and you were coming in to play games with them. So I went back to Leith Police Station the following Monday to find out I was the only suspect they had <laughs> in a missing persons inquiry, which became a murder inquiry with seven victims. So I learned my second valuable lesson. Lesson one, write about what you don't know. And lesson two, don't do any research. <laughs> it just gets you into trouble. <laughs> now, there is a postscript to that story. Um, the guy was called Robert Black. You can look it up. This guy who killed the seven kids. Um, and they eventually caught him. A guy was mowing his lawn, his back lawn, his back garden, somewhere in England. And he heard a kind of commotion. He heard a noise. And he thought, that's a bit strange. And he sort of went around the side of the garden. He saw a van driving away. And he got the number plate. So he phoned it into the police. He said, I'm sure this is nothing but a kind of weird noises and this van drove away. The police stopped the van on the outskirts of town and they said to the driver, look, I'm sorry, we've got a report. Is it okay if we just take a look in the back? Yep. Round to the back of the van, open up the doors and victim number eight, still alive, was wrapped up in a carpet in the back of the van. The police officer who had stopped the van and opened the back doors was the father of the girl in the back of the van. True story. And that flags up something else, because fiction has to be realistic. It has to be credible, it has to be believable. The real world does not. And as we sit here tonight in Auckland and we look at the world around us, we know this to be the case. The real world makes no sense whatsoever just now, <laughs> which is why I'm in one of the worst professions in the world right now. I'm a fiction writer trying to make you believe this stuff is credible when the real world is completely incredible. <laughs> How do we deal with that? How do we deal with it? I have no idea. That, however, is the heart of the matter. Thank you very much. What a great job this is. We love story at the Auckland Writers Festival and we share that love with all of you here. And I just think what you've seen tonight 
is just a taster of what is to come in the next three days. So we hope that you will find your way through a program rich in possibility and find things that in, to engage with. Uh, amongst the other things that are happening, I just want to say you will have noticed as you came in, one of the ambitions of this year is to claim that square a little bit more and we've installed the beautiful uh, Pacific Crystal Palace, the Heartland Festival Room. There are free salons in there each night, including this evening. There'll be a salon out there with guests on the stage, internationals and two of uh, Auckland's wonderful comedians. I went last night to the salon. I haven't laughed so much in a long time. It was a relief after quite a lot of hard work. So I invite you to, if you're leaving this evening, do pop into the tent and have a drink or come and see us across the weekend as you're spending time. So the last thing we're going to do before the lights go up is I'm just going to invite everyone back to the stage in a lineup so that we can thank them once again for such a fantastic evening. So in order of appearance, Mr. Glenn Cahoon. The Irish master, Anne Enright. The very wonderful Lloyd Gehring. And Gina Cole. James Shapiro. Ivan Coyote and Paul Tutu Van Firth and Ian Rankin. Thank you. All eight of them will be out in the foyer signing books. Go and see them, have a great night and prepare for the morning. We have much to do. Thank you and good evening. Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.